everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 11. Uh, I am John, the executive producer of Final Show Films and host here, and with me today, also at John A. Bates on Twitter, and with me today is Jack. Hey everybody, I'm Jack, I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hey people, I'm Jeremy, JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And today we're talking about episode 11 of Critical Role, The Temple Showdown. Uh, episode 11 aired 5-21-2015, um, and stars Orion Acaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talzin Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, Travis Willingham as Grog, and as always, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Previously on Critical Role, the party of adventurers were tasked to look at an individual uh, famed folk hero named Lady Kima Vord, who was a paladin of Bahamut, who on a vision quest had gone beneath the northern city of Craghammer in the Cliffkeep Mountains to find some sort of great evil that had awakened beneath. Uh, the party delved beneath the city and uh, breached through the Underdark to follow her trail. Fighting past Dur- Durgar, Mind Flayers, and various other denizens of the Underdark, uh, as well as befriending one Mind Flayer named Clarota, uh, and saving Lady Kima after she had been tortured for weeks at the hands of Durgar. Upon saving her, they were informed that a, a great evil named Kavarn had become attached to a artifact of great power called a Horn of Orcus, uh, Orcus being a demonic god of undeath. And they continued further down in, into the Underdark to find the, the Illithid city Yogvaril, where Kavarn has basically ensnared the minds of the Illithid via their, via their uh, elder brain, and uh, through that created an alliance with Durgar. Once they got close, they scried uh, on Kavarn and on the, the situation inside, and determined that Kavarn was a beholder. Uh, after that, they made their approach, and they found what sort of looked like they they began they began slowly approaching onto the island, uh, making their way up onto because onto, uh, Yogvaril is on an island, and uh, they found bits of ruins that coat the island. That is, uh, basically, that the island has Yogvaril and then city ruins around it, and that's pretty much it. While they were on the while they were uh, stealthing through the island, they found what looked like an encampment uh, with a series of rags and furs, sort of a large living space, and drew the attention of a giant. Cre- a giant, malformed, pale, purplish-gray-skinned, single-eyed entity known as a Fomorian. And that's where we picked up. But before we before we go into the recap of this episode, I do want to talk about one thing. So for the past couple of episodes, uh, Critical Role has been using a live credit roll at the beginning, basically where they, 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 they show off the actors, the, the actual live actors themselves, not art, Going through a variety of poses and you know having their names introduced and they're you know dressed up sort of symbolically of their characters, not actually as their characters. Yeah, um, sli- and slightly more classic take on a title sequence. Yeah, and yeah. going through it. So the title sequence is something that is fairly unique to uh, the to television television writing in particular. And back in the 90s, we saw lots of these styles of television where it was quick vignettes of the actors doing something wholly unrelated to whatever the purpose of the show was, but it showcased sort of a little bit of their personality, a little bit of what they do, and also gave you a quick visual reference of that character and their name. And uh, it's sort of fallen out of use and fallen by the wayside, but I do find that for 
uh, for uh, an audience that maybe doesn't watch as regularly as you can online, they were particularly useful. Back when they were popular, it was a time where you either recorded a show on VHS or you watched it week to week. So if you missed something, you may have missed a lot. And this yeah. this sort of thing helped to bring you in and say, hey, look, these are the characters of this show if there are any people that have been new that are new that have been added or if you are new to the show and you're catching it now because you can't go back to the beginning and watch from the beginning here are our characters yeah, um, it's quick like little video flashcards of the yeah. cast and generally with something at least you know i mean frequent frequently it's actual excerpts of broadcast episodes nowadays it is nowadays, nowadays it, is. It, it didn't used to be Leon's. Right. It did not, or, or or previously ons, or snippets of things that may come about in the future. Uh, depending. Yes, on, it's a, it's you know. a, it is the, what they currently do is sort of a teaser of hey, keep an eye out for these things. Or if this happened like three seasons ago, you you know you're probably not going to remember it. So here you go. Right. Well, um, what I'm talking about more is like the say like Saved by the Bell. Yes. Right. No. This is a. So this is and and you know we were talking last week about how how much TV and movies have sort of stolen formats from each other. This is something that 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 used to be a big thing in film back before Lucas broke the rule, and that was a that was a huge thing at the time for Star Wars of not having yep. an opening credit sequence. That used to be the big thing. We you get them still now, but. They used to be much more informative kinds of things. Yeah, um, they, they, were, they were very, especially back in the classic Hollywood and silver yep. screen era, they were very formalized and they were very systematic in the way they portrayed crediting. And I mean, like, and there's there's huge elements regarding crediting and billing just in, in actor negotiations, mm -hmm. basically, since actor negotiate actor contract negotiations became a thing yep. because you know yeah whose name shows up first is there's a lot of impact that goes along with that even if the audience doesn't always realize it yep yeah, yeah. and it's now, something john, that... john are you are you talking about things like like buffy had plenty of of show excerpts during their title sequences firefly no, like i said I, I'm, well. I'm talking about like save by the talking bell about like okay. the old the, the, the the old nineties actor name. Here's the 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 picture. The, you know the quick clip of that person. Right. Yeah. The old nineties uh, title sequences. Again, Saved by the Bell is one that just immediately on my mind. But uh, that uh, all all of those like sort of family after school drama dramedy things. Yeah. Uh, where they would go through a full house. Also had them where basically it would be shots of the characters standing in doorways, rapidly turning to camera and smiling. Mm -hmm. Like no, that had no actual connection to the story of the day or to the series as a whole, aside from right. potentially the location. That's the, actually the, it's the, the cast of friends playing in the fountain, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Sort of thing. Buffy did the same thing for that was that was its opening credit sequence. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be yes, it would be clips from the actual you know past episodes, but it, it was the same thing as like the yeah the the Saved by the Bell and that sort of thing, right. which has come out of gone out of practice now. Because as television has become more of a serial format, you you need that time for your previously of. Mm -hmm. Because again, if you missed a single episode, you've missed something, right? Um, and you you can't you can't do it. Doesn't work to do both the previously on and the well, 
also, here's everybody in their names. Also, yeah. uh, you use that space for the cold open now. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, cold open, previous on, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I just, that was something I, just wanted to, I wanted to touch upon because I think I find it interesting that they are using that sort of older, ni- older, early '90s style of intros. And, but it, but it, it is something that works with this sort of format primarily because when you're, you know, if if we were writing this with an internet audience, especially an audience as large as this, you're going to have people coming in for the first time every episode. Yep. Yeah. So it does help to have a quick. Rather than having people in chat, especially if chat's as busy as Geek and Sundries is basically unreadable, <laughs> rather than having people in chat trying to explain things, having this quick little thing where it's like, oh, well, here here are the people, here what here's what they do in the show, and this is basically what we're about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a production saver in terms of, like, they could do a previously on and, like, throw some clips together and stuff. But that's a lot of production and editing work. Right. If you put if you put together this one sequence that very succinctly tells you, okay, you know the obvious Liam's playing the rogue because that's you know he's clearly the rogue character. Callison's playing the guy with the gun, etc. That very quickly tells you who everybody is without the need to do new work every episode. Yeah, and, and they already have the recap covered by you know Matt's opening yeah. narration, so. There's there's no point in wasting more of your real estate to repeat yourself. And yep. it's it's a quick, flashy, showy kind of, oh, kind of campy as well, uh, thing that puts you in the mood for the show, show. Tells you who everybody is and is over very quickly, so you can get onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a, I think it's a good touch, and I think I think definitely going with that campy '90s aesthetic. Well, or not aesthetic, but that campy '90s setup, I should say, of you know, turn to camera, do a thing name it works very well in this situation yeah and yeah because it's because it's a very efficient method of information transmission both textual and visual yeah yep so as the fomorian lumbers towards its camp vex and vax jump over the jump over a wall and tumble across the ground sliding underneath a heap of furs it isn't until they're hiding in there that they realize that the smell is horrific and as it hits vax he fails a constitution save and begins to heave uh vex like throws a hand over his mouth but he just vomits into her hand and muffles the sound a little bit but it's mostly just disgusting as the giant is sort of investigating the sound of the vomit uh we get uh a sample of uh sam is running late so uh matt uh, as playing scanlan uh uses dominate on the uh, on the fomorian to make him basically do what he wants for a while he temporarily takes mental control over it at that point, Vex tries to use her infinite her infinite twine to wrap the creature up, but as she is trying to do it, it shrugs off its dominate spell, breaks the rope, and, and, and a fight happens. The, the rest of the party begin running towards the fight, while Vex and Vax and Scanlan try to deal with him. He uh, So he it hits Vex. Uh, Scanlan uses Bigby's uh, hand to sort of grapple him and hold him in place. Vax starts stabbing him repeatedly. Scanlan, uh, and as the fight begins, Scanlan tries to get away by jumping over a wall into what appears to have been formerly a fighting pit of some kind, getting baseball batted down by the Fomorian, and then uh, sort of returns fire with a lightning bolt. Uh, the rest of the team arrives. Pike throws a spiritual, uh, uh, makes a spiritual weapon, sort of a grappling hook, uh, to wrap around the Fomorian. Grog tries to talk to the giant because Grog can speak giant. And uh, throughout this whole time, Scanlan has been saying to not kill the Fomorian because he wants to use it basically as a battering ram. So Grog tries to talk the giant down. It did not work. So Grog runs in and punches him. 
Goliath Pers- diplomacy. Yeah, you know, Goliath diplomacy. Yep. Percy kneecaps him, sending him tumbling over to the wall and almost crushing Vax and Scanlan. Keyleth wild shapes into a giant snake and tries to constrict him. And we see once more uh, this sort of this sort of act first, plan second attitude Vox Machina has as uh, while Keyleth is turned into a snake and trying to str- and trying to you know strangle the Fomorian, Percy start Percy and Vex start firing at the Fomorian, which you know threatens to hit Keyleth. But Vex does fire a sleep arrow, uh, which knocks the Fomorian unconscious. While the creature is asleep, the team sets about trying to restrain him, and we get what is effect. So I'm going to tell you what they do, and then I'm going to tell you how long it takes them to do it. <laughs> they tie him up with chains and rope, and Keyleth puts a geas on him. Gias takes about a minute or so to cast. All right. Tying up with chains of rope takes a few seconds. Yep. It took them 30 minutes to Describe settle on process. this plan. <laughs> I mean, that's D&D, though. Be- well, yeah, it is D&D to a point, but it took 30 minutes for them to settle on this plan, mostly because they kept going back and forth between what they wanted to do and how they should be doing it, and... Like four of them were trying to do four different things at the same time and talking over each other. Which, of course, we don't see that in the narrative, which is why I just told you what they did instead of how they got to it. But I do find that interesting. I don't know if there's anything narratively to talk about there other than just remarking it for the viewers who are going to be rewatching the episode. There's well, a lot of time spent in this episode yeah, talking. I don't know if it's, a, if it's a narrative thing, but it's definitely a collaborative storytelling thing. Yeah. yeah. If you're if you're going to be working on something with somebody, well, especially collaborative improv, you know, they're one of one of the axioms of film production is basically holy fuck pre-plan everything because every 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 hour you spend in pre-production saves you multiple hours during the actual filming mm-hmm. and and post because yeah, when when everybody when you've the more people you have trying to make shit up on the fly, the more things are going to fall through the cracks and get taken out of context or or completely forgotten or any number of stuff will happen anytime that you're working on something with other people. So yeah, planning ahead. Good plan. Even knowing that odds are when you're planning ahead, everything's going to go out the window. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still, I mean, still going to have a plan. That's just, that's just, yeah, that's just standard opera. Yeah, you'll, you'll have a disaster. Show, so the, yeah, at least once. Um, the, 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 <laughs> but, trick, the trick is the trick there is that it's much easier to re to to renegotiate your initial plan if you have an initial plan. Very much. It's much harder to do that if you didn't have a plan in the first place. Exactly. Uh, which is where showrunners come in on TV shows and where uh, mm-hmm. editing, bi- where, where uh, script Bibles come in on films, mm-hmm. where the, 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 you know, there is a book at all time on a film set, on a film set that has a, that has an emphasis on story. Let me, let me, let me preface that because right. not all film sets have these, but on a film set that is trying to tell a narrative film, uh, there is at all times two books that have every world-building document, character biography, uh, scene shot, photographs of costumes, costume design document, every aspect of that story bound in a, in a spiral notebook somewhere, or a binder of some kind somewhere. There are at least two of them on set at all times, uh, because everybody needs to reference back to what is called the, the script Bible, or the, yep. or the world Bible, or the story Bible. It's got a couple different names, but it is basically the underlying, this is our plan, and everything needs to... At 
at least somehow match to this. In the Marvel movies, it has, in like on a Marvel movie set, in addition to having the idea and stuff for this movie, it also has information and facts and screenshots and, and images from all of the other Marvel movies so that mm-hmm. the current director can reference back to what other directors have done and say, okay, I need to do, I need to make sure that when I do this, it looks like this because they did this in that other movie and it looked like that. And that's um, a that's a big thing that that it's interesting that the 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 how cinematic universes have begun unfolding en masse now, and blockbusters and sort of how the secrecy behind a lot of this stuff, you can sort of see which which companies are still use those kinds of kinds of ideas and which ones try to go with the secrecy instead and don't stick around in terms of the in terms of the the film bible because generally if they're not using it their stories are a mess yeah, yeah. and and in cohes and in cohesive yeah. and you know yeah no but cuz yeah if, if especially if you're if you're telling a serialized story and you have any level of of a fan base that's committed to and invested in your your narrative continuity errors are going to be very evident to the people that watch and actually care about your shit your fans know your story better than you do guaranteed frequently very frequently because there's there's a level of of comprehension that one person writing a story can overlook something a thousand people all reading the same story at least one of them is going to notice notice any given problem Yep. Just 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 by just by sheer numbers and exposure. Yeah. So yeah, this this so this is less of a discussion on the narrative of the episode itself and more on the discussion of forming a narrative in the first place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it is important to, you know, it is important to maintain consistency in your story. It is important to maintain that sort of planning aspect. And from a player perspective, it's important to when when you're when you have a group and I'm surprised it hasn't happened Yet, I mean, there, 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 there are signs that it may have been at one point attempted and then abandoned. Um, but for for a group of people operating together regularly, there typically ends up being an order of operations whenever certain situations come up. I know, just as an example, Final Show Films. When we 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 all when when we, when we go to record a podcast, we know that eventually I'm going to say, "Okay, everybody, are you ready to go?" Everybody says yes. That means, and when I do that, that means stop whatever it is you were doing or talking about previously, so we can actually start recording. I do the clap. Sometimes I do the intro spiel. Happens. Sometimes that even happens. Yeah, I do the clap. <laughs> I do the intro spiel, and we go. The same thing with most of the times with D and D games. Uh, yeah. The 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 GM will say, "Okay, everybody, are we ready? Yes. Okay, let's go." And then we'll go into the game, even if it's not podcasted like ours is. There's still some sort of regimented uh, decision making, saying, "Okay, ready? Go, go." And we can see that the the cast of Critical Role has some of that outside of the game because Matt ha- you know Matt has certain ways of getting their attention and saying okay let's go i just find it interesting that it hasn't translated into the game yet that sort of you know when somebody does this we need to do that uh mentality because it's still everybody coming up with their own plan at the same time and trying to implement it at the same time but eventually they 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 manage to settle on a plan and they get the Fomorian chained up and Keyleth casts her her uh her Gia spell. 
And like I said earlier, this episode is going to be a lot of us talking about them talking, because not a lot actually, not a lot in-game actually happens in this episode. But we'll get to that as we go. So yeah, they put the giant under their command, and through a series of back-and-forth communication, Keyleth, who's casting the spell, talking through... Uh, Vax, who can, or, sorry, Vex, who can actually speak low common, which the Fomorian speaks, to the Fomorian, who then talks back to Keyleth through Vex in low common. Basically, they get across the idea that they want, that, that they, the Gius they've placed on the Fomorian is to help them kill Kavarn. Gius being a spell which basically you give somebody a command and they have to follow it, unless they can make a will save, and then even if they make the will save, they have lots of penalties for not following the command. And most of the time, it just means you're going to do the thing I tell you until you finish doing it. Or die trying. Uh, and may I yeah. say, as much fun for the DM to use on the players as the players to use on the NPCs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> if you ever get to a point where you can put a Gius on a player, oh, that's fun. Do it. Yeah. And the Gius is a, uh, it's a, it's a mythological construct, um, having its origins in stories and legends, mostly from the British Isles. It's Irish, Scotch Gaelic, that sort of thing. Frequently, it's, it's not the same in tradition as necessarily being under a vow or a spell. Originally, it was a taboo that any given uh, character was, was bound to avoid. I think, uh... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Kukulain from yes. Irish mm-hmm. mythology. Yep. Had, uh, and, you know, it, he's he's basically his his background is he killed the favorite dog of a significantly powerful individual and therefore took the place of the dog. Um, and therefore his taboo was he couldn't eat dog meat. And that's something that's a, a key element. Um, and frequently the geese has a level of destiny to it where eventually the character will find themselves in a situation where they have to violate their taboo generally with like you were saying John as the as the spell implies fairly horrific consequences frequently uh personal loss and or up to individual death but so they yeah it's a it's an interesting concept if anybody's interested in mythology looking into the to the the mechanism of the geese is there's some there's some pretty cool pretty cool stuff there well uh, and it's also the, the old irish and welsh mythology it's also a, a a plot device when you're talking about narrative storytelling that has a lot of potential both good and bad mm-hmm. for redirecting certain characters for a lot of, a lot of the times when I see geases or, or or similar types of things used like most tropes most of the time when it's used it's used in a lazy fashion but there are there there is a lot of opportunity there to take characters who you think would be interesting to see them work together but they wouldn't necessarily have a good reason to and and throw those two personalities together in a way that makes sense within the storyline and, and see how that goes off. That's not exactly what happens here because ooh, we'll get to that later in the story. But like shows like we, we reference it all the time, but Buffy was a really good example of this in terms of Spike mm-hmm. um, and and part of the the beginning of turning him from okay, everybody loves this character and, and, and he's a villain, 
but Joss Whedon seeing possibility in in turning him into somebody who has to work with the group. And so they do it through the otherwise terrible season four in in putting a chip in his head that, that makes it in where he can only actually do damage to, to demons. And that's a really good example of where you can you can take elements like this if they fit within your story and and use them to throw these kinds of characters together and, and see what comes from it. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, they put a Gius on the guy and they all take a rest before they decide to recon the temple. Nothing happens during the long rest and after they finish their rest, uh, Grog breaks out his cask of ale and he, you know, he takes a drink and offers a drink to the giant who tears off the top of it and downs the rest of it. At this point, there is a wisdom save. Yeah, destroying the cast in the process, <laughs> effectively. At this point, there's a wisdom save by Grog, who goes into a rage, runs up the runs up the Fomorian, and headbutts him in the face. Yep, just laying him out flat and yelling him that yelling at him that he owes him another uh, cask of ale because you know and you know basically you don't fuck with Grog's cask of ale, which is awesome as a character choice because oh, yeah. he made that save. Yeah, no, he, he didn't have to do that. And I always love it when I see players or or, or, or people in, in collaborative storytelling where there's something that they don't necessarily have to do, and it could be conceivably very detrimental to them, and they go with it anyways. It, it's a really great choice. It actually works out great here. Yep. Yeah. And this is, for me, this was Grog's first, like, of the entire series. This was his first crowning moment of awesome for me. Yeah. Because, you know, <clears throat> even as as the, the GM's describing it, you know, this is, this is the equivalent of a, a freshman on the high school football team headbutting an NFL linebacker unconscious. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because – and the fact that the choice was made – in order to reinforce an essential aspect of Grog's character that we were already familiar with, if not at least suspicious of. And it was just, it was, it, it was one of those beautiful moments when the dice tell the right story. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, it's described as basically uh, Grog, whose head is about a quarter of the size of this Fomorian's, uh, smashing him in the face and then the Fomorian just laying out flat. After. Grog raging at the morning and getting off of him, uh, Tiberius uses his mending wheel to mend the barrel. I uh, can't fill it back with ale, but uh, mending the barrel seems to have ha- seemed to have eased Grog's pain. Pike takes some time to heal Vax's foot uh, a little bit, and then he and Scanlan set off to take a closer look at the temple with their own eyes. As they scan the edge of the city, they, just, they see dozens of Illithid wandering the city, most of them uh, with mind-controlled slaves. Uh, as they complete their loop around, a swarm of bats swoop down and seems to be keeping tabs on them. They drop down lower and move back to the camp to their fellows to report what they saw. The group then debates for another good hour, uh, basically what to do next. Tiberius staunchly refuses to step inside the temple multiple times, uh, basically saying that he would rather they, uh, they he would rather they draw Kavarn out of the temple rather than go in there themselves. Which uh, is a is a fairly you know seems fairly reasonable. A uh, reasonable statement to make. It's that from a moment, perspective, yeah, yeah. That moment is really funny for me because, okay, I know I'm the guy who normally rags on Tiberius because I, I, I'm just not that fond of, of of the character's style. But that whole sequence and sort of what results from it is one of the biggest regular criticisms of of Tiberius's in character actions that I think I that I think I've ever seen 
among among viewers. And the thing is, it's very it is entirely consistent with his character. Oh yeah, it's tactical thinking. It's I'm smart enough. I'm I'm I I know enough about this thing. Well, to, I think I do. to know that we shouldn't be in close against it. And is Tiberius being so stubborn as to this is what needs to happen that he puts his foot down on that, even as everybody else is like, well, we're going to do it. And he's like, I don't care. I'm not setting in there, foot in there. So from a storytelling perspective, what would you guys suggest is the best way to handle something like this? Because I've run into this in any number of games and, and works of fiction that I've I've been part of over, over the years, where you have that one character that's stubborn. And while a solo run or a solo protagonist narrative, this isn't as much of an issue when it's a group focused narrative, ultimately it will sometimes come down to this one character absolutely refuses to go along with the group. So you either split the party or what else? What other your what are your other options? Kill the player. I'm sorry. You know, I mean the character. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that cuz I'm figuring that out for this weekend. But <laughs> Oh, don't worry. No, we got it. We got that handled. Oh no. No, no. I've 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 got planned. It's fine. And I actually I, I kind of like those moments because I really like characters that are willing to stay. As long as it's not five players, as long as it's not like m- my first experience healing in Dead Minds where all the other character, all the, everybody else goes in five different directions. I'm, I, I like those kinds of, kinds of things because it does give opportunities in a, in a large ensemble group. It's very easy for you to lose focus on on certain characters. It's very hard for certain characters to get their opportunities to shine. Uh, uh, quieter characters or, or, or more passive characters are likely to be drowned out, and that's just the the, the state of of personal dynamics. When you have those characters that sort of branch, uh, that sort of branch off, as long as it's not, I'm taking these permanent paths in these opposite directions. And it's just a scene or two. I really like that because it gives you the opportunity to sort of go back and forth uh, 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 between those two and and give these characters who might otherwise get drowned out a little bit a, a chance to to really have some some focus in character development. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, it's always about staying true to the story you're trying to tell and to the characters that are in that story. If these are people that are dead set in their ways and are not going to agree and are determined to go either way in no matter what sort of medium it is if it's dnd if it's uh if it's a writing a story if it's doing a film let them go their way and then yep. see what happens when they do as an example a dnd uh we had a session i had a session once where we had uh three characters in a party it was a three character party and two of the characters were batshit crazy in different directions and they went into a cave and one said, always left, and the other one said, right is right, and they both, independently of the rest of the other two, ran off down two different corridors without waiting for the rest of the party. Awesome. <laughs> one of them ran, one of them uh, went 357 miles into a wall, or miles an hour into a wall, <laughs> because he was on a jet, oh, cool. because he was on a jet-powered kitchen table. Oh, um, okay, I know who that is. <laughs> and the other one ran into a troll who killed him. <laughs> The, th- the third one made it out alive. 
And, you know, sometimes that happens. Other times, you know, if there's a character who has irreparable, like, un- un- unrepairable misgivings or issues with the party, they you sunset that character. They go yep. away. They leave because they cannot... Like, if they cannot reconcile a reason to main t- to stay with the party, then they leave. And maybe they get talked about later by the GM as an NPC. Maybe they don't. But they are written out effectively of the story. And and that is a that that in particular is a technique used quite often in TV, movies, and books, where a character cannot like it's 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 a consequence for the other characters in the story, basically. Mm-hmm. Like you've made a decision that I cannot come back from. Yep. And yeah, I would they say, walk away. But but those are usually fairly intense circumstances that contradict the character's motivations and personality makeup on a, on an extremely fundamental level. Yeah. Um, you know, one one of one of my pet peeves from from players is anybody who says, "Well, that's just what my character would do." Right? <laughs> that as 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 somebody who runs games and tells stories, to to me that shrieks of lazy storytelling or mm-hmm. you know because honestly anytime that in real life any of us are given a choice it's very it's fairly rare that we look at a circumstance and fundamentally believe for ourselves there is only one possible reaction to right this sort of thing um you know whether that's changing lanes in traffic or picking dinner for the evening or, you know, any number of things, there are always multiple options still in keeping with who we are as people uh, that, that we can justify to some mm-hmm. extent. And some of them are more justifiable or more easily justifiable for ourselves than others. But it's very, very rare that any of us in our day to day run across a situation where we fundamentally believe there's only one possible choice to be made when i I do have an exception to that by the way right but when when other writers talk to me and they tell me about stories they're writing and you know that they they say oh well the characters just decided to go this way and i just had to follow them i always want to shake them by their shoulders and say you're the fucking writer these are these are things that live in your brain you get to decide they don't they're they they're not real. They don't make choices. If, no, if being... the story's not going the way you want it to, change their minds because you're the puppet master, you know? And for me, there are it's of course more complex when you've got multiple people engaged in, in telling a story because my version of John's character and Jeremy's version of John's character are probably at least slightly different than John's version of John's right. character. I mean, they, but, you, but mean you don't like it when Fang who, just decides to eat whatever he kills? <laughs> Which is why Coronix wanders around constantly trying to keep an eye on the guy. Um, <laughs> I mean... It's, no, what, it's, it's, it's what my character would do. So, I would... That drives me nuts from a from in a role playing game perspective. It drives me insane because yes, when when you're looking at a role playing game, people people hear this and think that think that that you're being you're being metagame, you're committing some sort of terrible sin. But when you're when you're playing a character within a game, 
you are you're in the process of as we've talked about regularly here of telling a story in collaboration with each other you're not in competition with anyone and i think you see this a lot in role-playing games where people see the game aspect and and get a get a level of competitiveness to it and get a level of adversarialness to it in in terms of their characters and when you're in this, yes, there are things that your character may, may may do that are not best of the party's interest that are perfectly fine. But if you if, if all you can say is that's what my character would do and you can't a you can't back that up and you can't say why that's your char- what your character would do. Not that you necessarily do have to justify all your reasons in the middle of that moment. But if you can't back that up or if your character, and then there are some characters that are so dead set that it, that it, that it's really hard to justify otherwise, or there are situations that come up where I'm sorry, my character is a pacifist. No, I'm not going to go on this mass slaughter just because of the rest of the group says so. That's mm-hmm. valid, but ultimately you are working with the players, and it is perfectly fine to do something that might not be exactly what your character might do in that moment. Because it's going to better fit the story overall. And I mean, how many times have probably all of us done that in the real world where, you know, we do something that we're not proud of or that isn't consistent with our personal beliefs or values, but we were pressured. We were under an element of impulse or, you know, or we're just not super fucking intransigent all the time. Um, (laughs) And, you know, yeah. That sort of thing is honestly more in keeping with developing, in my opinion anyway, mm-hmm. a, a, an actual relatable three-dimensional char- character of somebody who, yeah, doesn't always keep to the playbook. Yeah. And always... Because if they always keep to the playbook, then they're predictable and they're easily manipulated. Yeah. Well, it is worth mentioning that when we're, when we're looking at an episodic format, whether it's television or something like like Critical Role, it is a lot harder to do, or it is a lot easier to fall into those situations. Because when you're writing a, writing a story or writing a film, and you get to a point where a character does, you can go back all the way to the beginning if you have to, mm-hmm. and rewrite that character. It is a lot easier to write your characters into essentially a a narrative corner where they might end up having to leave or having to do something that is is just there aren't many other good options. The best option might not be what the audience wants for them because you've had three seasons of this coming. So yes, Stan is, has to has to do what he does in his final season of Game of Thrones, no matter how many people hate it or so on is whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. So I've got some caveats. Primarily, I don't think that the phrase, it's what my character would do is a bad phrase. And I'm going to stand up for the people that use that phrase because it's a good phrase. Uh, <laughs> specifically, because sometimes characters just do things. Sometimes people just do things with no thought behind it, no reasoning behind it, nothing other than a sudden inspiration or spur or uh, action or just a need to do a thing. Impulse is a thing. Yeah, and and you don't even saying you don't you don't necessarily have to ha- have to explain your reasoning behind everything. You don't necessarily have to have a reason behind everything. 
There are, it is entirely acceptable that some characters will just do things for no reason. And they might think about it later and go, huh, why did I do that? But it, it is entirely reasonable to say that's what my character would do because meh, that's just what my character would do in that particular situation with those factors with those factors in play. This, this, and this coming down. If he had to choose between A, B, and C, he's going to choose C. Why? Because. Um, well, no, it's that I feel is that I feel is entirely reasonable. Also, sometimes there are people like there people exist that just. Do the same thing in every situation. And while that might seem boring at first, if you think about it in the context of uh, D&D in, in, a, in a system where everybody plays these characters that has extraordinary, uh, extraordinary levels of strength and versatility and emotional stability and endurance and fortitude, having a guy whose stress response is to do the same thing over and over again becomes the interesting character there because he's the one person in the party that can't react quickly or or elegantly so i feel like there's an argument there for for these characters that don't necessarily go for the go, you know go, uh, bend to the party's whims not because it would be narratively satisfying for the entire group but because it's an interesting quirk to throw in there to make the group have to solve well yes now, but now, and also... that's not and that's, and that's not to say that every character needs to do that all the time ever because that would be infuriating right. um well but but to take it to a slightly more meta level there are ways to play a stubborn or unyielding character where you are you are not merely a brick wall that the rest of your group is constantly having to smash their heads again against in order to try to get anything done. Yep. Yeah. And frequently for me, the problematic times when I've heard the that's just what my character would do, it's generally and I'm, this is just occurring to me right now, it's more more accurate to say well, this isn't something. This is not something my character would do. They're refusing to cooperate. Yeah, that that is a more problematic phrase. Right. Uh, but an example that I would I, an example that I would give as a character that I have written that does the same thing over and over again is a robot. Uh, specifically, a, 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 a it was in a D and D campaign. It was a um, a denizen of the what's the mechanical plane where all the Modrons come Mechanist. from? Yes, uh, it was a a member of the soldier force of Mechanist, effectively a war force, but one of them that had been basically left behind on the material plane and had had its internals fried and replaced by dark magic with a beating human heart. Um, and so for all intents and purposes, it was a mind wiped robot that had no idea how anything worked ever. And so he had a set of protocols that he would always revert to because he didn't know how to do anything else. And, you know, if the, if the party helped him and said, hey, you shouldn't do this and, and, and gave him new information, he would act upon it. But if they didn't, he would do the same thing over and over again. And that presents that presents not only a, you know, yes, yes, it does present a stubborn, um, bullheaded type of character that the party might not necessarily be able to get along with if they don't know how to teach a person how to do things. But it also provides that social challenge of teaching this robot how to behave. And yep. that provides an interesting narrative focus and an interesting narrative twist that can go on in the background, especially if that character happens to be an integral part of the party, the cleric, as he was. <laughs> I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> there, there is, there's opportunity in that. 
I think what we're talking about here are ones that take take the focus away from yes, not ones that 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 provide more storytelling opportunities. We're talking about ones that that, that t- either take storytelling opportunities away, distract from distract from the main storyline, the kinds of stuff that would be edited out in a a a single written or yeah. an episodic you know tv show or ones that are players just saying screw you i know this is the way the storyline's going i don't want to go this way so i'm going to be disruptive no that's that's, that's absolutely fair i just want to play those devil's ad- I, I just want to play devil's <laughs> advocate for the people that will have said those sentences and don't oh, no. shouldn't be made to feel bad for saying them I don't think there's anybody in a role-playing game who hasn't said that at one point. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a statement that has value. My characters do that all the time. Um, <laughs> they do things because it's what they would do, even though it doesn't necessarily fit into yeah. the best direction right. for the group to like go. Trying to, yeah. you know, trying to pick a fight with and, a deified creature, uh, guardian of the material plane, things like that. I mean, things like that, or, you know, g- g- yes. Anyways. And and I will freely confess that I'm one of those horrible people who believes narrative comes before character. I agree with you on that. I absolutely right. agree with you. On you know, yeah. And and that is that is not by any means I a am the more opposite. correct or less correct perspective on, on storytelling. It's just that's that's my personal bent. The, the overall story is f- more important and more innately valuable to me as a creative individual than any given character. The characters are there to tell the story. The story is not there to bow to the whims of any individual within the narrative itself. Yes. It's, it's, it, you know, and it's a good thing that I'm on this podcast then because I am the exact opposite <laughs> where the story comes from the characters. If you don't have interesting characters, you don't have a story in the first place. Well, those two statements are not, those aren't analogous statements. One is, well, it's, it's, it's the difference is it's narrative first versus character first. And in my mind, it's character first then narrative because the narrative can't happen without the characters. Whereas with Jack, it's narrative first and character because the overall narrative is more important than the individual character's narrative. I believe if I've, I've, I believe I've got that. I yeah. no, don't that's accurate. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and those 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 two perspectives are not always mutually exclusive. Sometimes no, they're they not are, at all. But, no, but not but not always. And but it know, is I mean, a, like, but yeah, it is a distinction. But it is a distinction. Yeah. Well, yeah. So where were we? <laughs> <laughs> I believe we were talking about Tiberius, Tiberius being arguing stubborn. about not wanting to go. Yes. Tiberius was talking about how he didn't want to go in the room, and uh, they went. They, they go through a variety of plans and settle on basically flying in uh, to fly, you know sneaking in to weaken uh, the crossbeam holding the device that they've determined is holding the there. There's like this large upside down pyramid thing above the elder brain uh, that they've determined is the uh, the artifact controlling the illithid and controlling the elder brain. They've decided to sneak into the tip pyramid, break that, and then once it's broken, drop the Fomorian who has been polymorphed into a mouse onto the beholder in such a way that basically saying, you know, flick the mouse nuts and drop him. Because in yes. fifth edition, in fifth edition, when you lose all the hit points that your transformed state has, uh, you revert back to your original state. But yeah, uh, they're going for an aerial insertion, a la the good old 101st, 
and yep. hopefully the thing that they f- they think that they forgot the thing that all of them forgot more kamikaze was that, really i mean yeah the, <laughs> the thing that all of them forget and will come up again later is that uh and for you those of you that might not be familiar with hit edition rules is yes that does happen if you're if you're tra- if your polymorph state does uh run to zero hit points you do revert back to your normal and then the remaining damage that would have rolled over rolls over yes which is a very important thing we'll get to later so they basically get that uh, they, they 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 get that sort of you know, idea ready. They also spend about a half an hour arguing about whether or not they should be concerned with bats. And then they begin to sneak. They're going to sneak forward in two teams. The first team, consisting of Clorota, Percy, the Twins, and Scanlan, with Keyleth and Vax flying them in, I think? Or just Keyleth? It's just Keyleth uh, flying them in. Some... Ke- no, Keyleth and Vex. Keyleth and Vex, because Vex is using Path of the Trace. Yeah. Yes, so uh, Vex and Keyleth fly uh, Clorota, Percy, uh, Vax, and Scanlan in. And getting them in, uh, allowing them to get into position, and they go back. No, 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 no. This thing that I have is wrong because I know, I know, I know. Keyleth goes in the first wave because she uses her communication, her, her talk with animals to tell the bats to scurry off when they come investigating. Although that might have been the second wave, I don't remember. My this <laughs> this is not a well written summary. That I'm, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> It's just not super detailed. Yeah, the... the 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 second group comes over and and they all get into position. Uh, they're either the first or second group. Keyleth deals with a bunch of bats. Uh, actually, a fairly funny moment from a from an entertainment perspective of uh, Mercer uh, Matt missing the fact that Keyleth said that she was using her talk with animals ability. I'm not. Uh, I think other people were talking at the same time when she was trying to say it, and it got sort of lost in the shuffle. And so she just started talking to the bats, and Matt was assuming that she was just talking normally to the bats, right. trying to trying persuade to them to bats, right? trying to persuade them not to come near. <laughs> they get that sorted out, though, and she does indeed convince the bats to not come in this direction. So they get to work, and they they weaken the beams, uh, the, the, the beams holding this uh, thing up, and they're getting ready to break it. Uh, and so that's when the go sign happens. So Tiberius lets go of the mouth. A mouse, Scanlan, releases Polymorph on the Fomorian, and the Fomorian, uh, in, in all of his Fomorian glory, comes smashing down through the through the skylight of the pyramid and smacking into the device that they had weakened, presumably breaking my, uh, the control of the elephant. A remarkably effective plan by the group, yeah. considering how some of their plans work out. A remarkably conf- effective plan, Quite considering t- that they didn't have a plan five minutes ago. Yeah, um, I mean, this is this is because we're basically talking about this is like a season finale episode, essentially. Now they are fighting the big bad. Yes, so it works in terms of them having that plan. You know, after after I'm not going to say they bumbled their way all the way up to this point. But but, but they, they were a standard role-playing game group all the way up until this point. And they still were in this episode, too, in terms of a lot of their talking and planning. But narratively, in terms of them coming together and coming up with a really fantastic, creative way to, to tackle this problem really fits into that sort of, sort of pacing well. Yeah. So, yeah. This, uh, so the, the Fomorian breaks through the ceiling and, and heads down to the ground. And now we talk, but now we reference back to the thing I said previously about damage rollover. That would have applied if they had just dropped the mouse, but they completely forgot about that part and just launched the Fomorian full force into the ground, which after he fell through the roof, through the ball, through the uh, thing, and then hit the ground, the grand amount of total damage that he took from falling instantly killed him. Yeah, because, you know, mass plus gravity equals Hurt. hamburger. Uh, yeah, so they're, 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 the, the, uh, Fomorian did not get the chance to fulfill his geas, 
before his life ended. I mean, he did just not not by voluntary action. <laughs> I mean, he didn't actually hit Kavarn. So no, but that was never their that, at that point. It wasn't really their plan. Their plan was to use the bulk of it to to take break out the barrier. Yeah, break through the barrier. So he served his purpose. Yep. It uh, there there was no way that this this character was making it out of this episode alive. Oh no, no, no. he was he was a red shirt through and through. He was such a red shirt. So yeah, they. Break through the uh, device, uh, they break through the uh, top of the pyramid, they break through the device controlling the elephant, and thus begins the boss battle. Kalarn immediately turns upon the crashing sound and looks over as Grog drops into the room using the rope Tiberius set up for him. Uh, Vax tosses daggers at him, one connecting and putting poison into his system. Vax fires a thorny arrow at him, the arrow exploding into a hail of splinters as the beholder is looking at Grog. He takes some damage. Uh, then he looks up at Vex, and at this point, we 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 make a note that whoever the beholder is looking at, whoever is in a cone of his primary eye's vision, well, a beholder's primary eye is an anti-magic cone. So basically, if he's looking at you, no magic. Uh, with his main eye, his other eyes does doesn't matter. If his main eye is looking at you, you can't use magic, which will become relevant in a minute. Uh, yes. So he 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 looks up at Vex. Uh, and and begins to fly up as he turns his eye stalks towards those uh, that are on the top of the pyramid, uh, the top of the temple. Percy dodges one uh, eye beam, and a second one grabs Pike and pulls her off the edge, dropping her to the floor below. Uh, another beam fires at Vax, who misses, uh, who who manages to avoid it, uh, and Clarota floats down, firing mind blasts at Kavarn as Tiberius tells him not to go in. Uh, because Tiberius is dead set about not going into that building, even though he's got an open area that he could be shooting from the roof at. He's technically not in the building, but Tiberius is being Tiberius, and he's being character, and and he is being that yeah. person that says, you know, even after he, even after all sense of caution should have been thrown to the wind, he is that person that remains a hold of his caution because he knows he's right and he's right no matter what. Yep, maintaining his character perfectly fine, and he is that he is that sort of that he is that character that doesn't know when to let go, and by his very wrong, nature, never in doubt, and by that nature, he is the reason why the audience can say yes, you should go forward. He's like that that type of character serves a purpose in that it's an indicator. You've set this character up to the audience to be the person who you don't agree with as the audience. And in this case, yes, Tiberius is the person you don't agree with as the audience. And because he is saying no, the audience knows to say yes. It's it's kind of it, it, this this is this sort of storytelling actually translates very well over to wrestling with the with the classic heel and face dynamic. Cowardly uh, heel. Because in wrestling, if the heel says something, you know, and you know that character is the heel, then you as the audience know to disagree with that person. Doesn't matter what they're saying, just chant the other way. And it's a way of engaging the audience on a very physical, primal level without having to think too hard about it. Yep. Yeah. Give them, give them somebody to, to, to disagree with. Yeah. And they will disagree as hard as they can. And that's the function Tiberius serves. Yep. Uh, it's a very he's, important he's role. He's kind of the foil. Yeah. character in this episode, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, more fighting the, ensues. So, the Mind Blast does nothing, and Kavarn continues, more fighting ensues, and they eventually, and after not a long period of time, Grog charges in, Pike shoots him with a with a guiding bolt, Keyleth dives at him as an Earth Elemental, grappling him and holding him in place, Clarota fires some lightning bolts and some Mind Blasts, Scanlan, uh, everybody sort of 
everybody's continually dodging eye beams. Uh, I believe uh, Kima gets hit with one and gets turned to stone. Or is that until later? That's actually not until later. That's a little later. That's yeah. a little later. And after a f- only a couple of rounds of fighting, uh, they manage to kill Kavarn. Yeah, this Kavarn goes down pretty easy. Yeah, no. I, I, yeah. While they're fighting Kavarn, though, Tiberius leaves the fight. He does the thing that he has been doing this entire campaign thus far. Yeah. And turns himself into an illithid in plain view of other illithid that he's already been told he can't disguise himself by, by an illithid. Clarota previously mentioned that uh, if you tried to disguise yourself, as you try to pass yourself off as an illithid in an illithid city, in an illithid city you get about 10 seconds before they crack your skull open and eat your brain. Right. Because, you know, it's really easy to see through deception when literally everybody has a collective... Yeah, when, you know, when you are part of a hive mind, it's easy to tell who's not part of the hive mind. Yep. You know how? They're not part of the hive mind. Right. <laughs> and see, this is the moment that, well I, well, I was defending a moments ago. This is the moment where this, Tiberius hits my shit list again. It, it, was at this part that, it was at this point that I had no idea what he was trying to do. This was an example of the characters that what I truly hate about characters in long form storytelling, which is complete lack of character growth and and ability to learn. It's okay to not learn certain lessons if after a certain amount of time, if you are the tragic side character or the Stannis Baratheon or or well, frankly, just about every character on Game of Thrones, but except for the the, the few I mean, that are the they don't main they don't live long enough to learn. But, yeah, so. that's the thing; is they don't live long enough to learn it. If you are one of the core protagonist characters, you should be learning from your mistakes. It, it, it's it, it's not just character growth doesn't just mean that your character changes over time, and we get more insight into the depth of your character. It means that you learn from your mistakes, and and nothing is more irritating for me than when characters go back to the same flaws again and again and again. For me, it shows, when it's a single person writing it, that they don't have any other ideas for that character. Now, that's not what I'm... Obviously, this is not talking about role-playing in Orion and and that sort of thing, because... This is all stuff that happens within the heat of a battle and you come up with an idea that's not good and you default to your usual choices that are not good. We all do that. But when you have a character like Tiberius who has tried so many times to change his form to look like other things and it never works well and and tries to say whatever the group is doing, I'm doing my own thing. And that rarely works well. When he does both of those in one, that's the moment when I'm pulling my hair out in terms of trying to watch that character as a viewer. Yeah. For for me, it was, it just wasn't, what he was trying to do was not clearly communicated to anybody. At this point, Tiberius just wandered off, basically. There was no, even, even, at this point, even Matt didn't know what he was trying to do. And, Part of that is because he tried to do five things at once. The the player forgot that they were in initiative order, apparently, because it's right. like, I want to fly down, I want to do this, I want to change my form, and I want to talk to them, and I want to do that, and I want to do this. It's like, one thing at a time. Like, and and, right. and Matt, Matt reminds him, one thing at a time. We're in initiative. 
You have six seconds for each action. Pick one. So yeah, it, the, the, thus begins the series of increasingly confusing actions that Tiberius be, uh, takes. And this is it. He leaves the building. Speeding down, he, he spots a group of uh, Illithid coming up, sort of converging on the temple. Gets on a carpet, flies down, casts fly on himself, jumps off the carpet, changes his form to Clarota, gets back on the carpet, and then tries to convince the Illithid to attack Kvarn. Verbally, with his mouth. <laughs> because, you see, he doesn't actually shapeshift into an Illithid, he just changes the illusion of his form into an illithid. Completely forgetting, as a side note, that even if they weren't still, you know, even if there wasn't still the mind control concerns, Clarota was outcast from his group. Yeah, so let's, let's, not let's be able just, to order them to do anything. So I'm just going to systematically list the problems with this plan. One, he's casting, he has a flying carpet, he for some reason casts fly on himself, gets off the magic carpet, then gets back on the magic carpet. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> I, but, and, but he listed it specifically. He said, I'm going to jump off the magic carpet, cast fly on myself, fly down, whip out the magic carpet, get on it. And like, like he specifically listed doing this, and I don't know why. Wasting multiple high-level spells, by the way, because fly is not a low-level spell. Minimum third level, at least. Yeah, yeah, minimum third level. Cast an illusion on himself that he has previously been told will not work on Illithid by an Illithid. Not only cast an illusion on himself to, to, to convince Illithid that he's an Illithid, even though he's been told that won't work by an Illithid, cast an illusion of an Illithid he knows was outcast from this group, and then tries to convince them to do a thing using his mouth in the form of an Illithid who don't talk verbally. Yeah. Like, this is the moment where if I was writing something like this, this is what I would be, this is what I call the Paul Reiser aliens moment. <laughs> not that, not that Tiberius is an antagonist, but this is the moment when if I was writing this particular scene, it would end necessarily with that character's capture, death, something horrifically bad because that's the only way that you can justify spending narrative time with this character doing all this nonsensical stuff. This is the part of the film or the television show that they had a new writer on. <laughs> a new writer who has not watched nearly enough of the previous episodes. Um, <laughs> this is the because, Buffy season four. Because this is the situation... Nothing that Tiberius does makes narrative, tactical, or any other kind of sense. Nothing he does in this section makes any sense on any level, except presumably to Orion, and I don't know that he's ever explained it. Even from what we already know as an audience of Tiberius, this doesn't make sense for Tiberius. Because while, yes, he is full of himself and self-assured and, and prone to go off on thing. He retains information. He has a brain. That's one of the things that he constantly talks about is, oh, I read this in a book. I remember this because I read it. Like, even if he read a book that wasn't accurate, he still remembers that he read it. He still remembers the things he is told and the things that he learns. And in this instance, he is forgetting five things that he was told literally today. Not to mention the laws of, uh, of of time and space, but... Right. I mean, that that too, but it's like, 
if I were if if somebody handed me a script and this was in it, I would have torn this page out. <laughs> there would be handed so it, much red. All handed over. it back to them, crumpled up in a ball, and say, "Douse that in honey and eat it," because you're not getting any use of it otherwise. Because it doesn't. There's there, it serves no purpose. I hope I've made that clear. It really does. This section yeah. serves no purpose. Getting back to the thing that does serve a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> they kill Kavarn. Yeah. They kill Kavarn. There's this brief moment of, oh, that was easier than we thought. At which point... <laughs> which you always inside. At which point, Kavarn sloughs off his skin <laughs> and comes back as a death tyrant. Although I'm not sure if he came back as a full-on death tyrant, because he did have some flesh left on him. It was more zombie than death tyrant, but... yeah. I, I think Matt didn't want to kill the people in the party. Right, because if he comes back them. as full Death Tyrant at the level that they're at, getting away from the narrative and more into the mechanics, yeah, they're so, all. So to give well, I mean, continuity-wise, it wouldn't make sense for him to come back, back as a Death Tyrant the way, because he was reanimated via the, the, horn, the horn, yeah. well, also, which is also, not the standard Death Tyrant. Also, way. Death Tyrants aren't... So, so here's a bit of lore for our listeners. A beholder is a massively powerful creature that is also mostly insane. And there is a version of the beholder that's basically a lich of the beholder called a death tyrant. Now, you may be forgiven for assuming that in order for a beholder to become a death tyrant, they have to die. That is not the case. A beholder that dies does not become a death tyrant ever. Because the way a beholder becomes a death tyrant is that the beholder has a dream or a fancy or a daydream in which they imagine a world where they have died. And because of that, they basically turn themselves into a lich through the power of imagination. Yep. yep. That is how a death tyrant is born. Beholder Not by killing are... a beholder because they had a wild fancy. <laughs> Beholders are scary fucking people, yo. <laughs> I just want to put that in your brain. So the next time you think about going up against a beholder in a campaign, it is entirely feasible that in the middle of the fight, a beholder could just go, you know what would be fun if I was a death tyrant? <laughs> and then they are. And then they are. It's the ultimate, I have a dream. <laughs> I have a dream in which I was dead. Skin falls off. Beholders are freaky. Uh, but no, so the beholder, Kavarn is dead, and then he's re he's resurrected as a zombie by the Horn of Orcus, not through his own wild, uh, crazed imaginings as a death tyrant. And then they fight him again. Uh, th in this in this fight, uh, in this fight uh, is when Kavarn turns Kima to stone. Uh, that's uh, Kima stone to count two. Yep, there needs to be an yep. intervention there. But yeah, they 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 kill uh, they 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 kill. Kvarn, and I believe Tiberius gets the killing blow? Yes, Tiberius gets the killing blow. Tiberius, so, so Tiberius, <laughs> so, so in the middle of everything that he's been doing outside, Tiberius suddenly comes to the realization, I think, I don't remember actually how he got back into the fight. He just eventually gets back to the fight. I don't know because how. He, I think because he finally realizes I'm completely ineffective elsewhere. Yeah. Like, I, in my notes... And in me watching the episode, I do not remember how he got back into the fight. I just know that, and I think he didn't. I think what happened was Matt went to his turn, and he retconned himself being back in the building. 
<laughs> that is entirely possible. I think that's what happened because I do not remember a point, a period of time between him being out there talking to Illithid and him being back in the pyramid. I do not remember that point of time. Either way, he uses telekinesis to rip the eye stalks off of the rip off one of the eye stalks out of uh, uh, Kvarn's head after he tries to get it after he tries to get the horn out of there. And then he hits him with a, 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 the round goes by and he hits him with a uh, glacial blast and that lands the killing blow. And then Tiberius goes back to being the irritating but still funk, but still narratively useful character of Tiberius as the rest of the group tries to go in and extract the horn and he uses telekinesis to rip it out of Kvarin's head and say, no, don't touch it. Um, he gets very, very angry, and I think part of this is him being angry because his plan didn't work, but he, he's very, like, like and, and the party comments on it, like, wow, you are being very, like, for someone who didn't engage in most of the fight, you're being very pissy right now, which is fair of the party. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, so yeah, he, he rips the horn out out with telekinesis <laughs> as, the, as the physical form of Kvarn melts into the floor, and that is where they end the episode. Uh, with Kavarn so, recently defeated and an army of Illithid presumably coming in the door next. Yep. And it's also worth mentioning, because we didn't mention it, one of the party falls. They do? Yeah. Yes. Grog, Grog, Grog got dies. Killed. Dies, dies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's another one of those things I missed. And so that's what I wanted to talk about. So Go this, ahead. I, I, I sort of touched on it before was that this being essentially a season finale kind of episode. This is sort of, and sort of talking about how you conclude a storyline. Because when you're talking, when you're looking at storylines like this, epic sort of fantasy, or not fantasy, sci-fi, any kind of genre storyline, usually when you get, usually you're in not just moral or personality conflict kind of things, but like, life and death struggle against some sort of of, of adversary because you need something obviously on the other side that is sort of a personification of everything that you're against that season and so when you hit this point this needs to be the point where you know the stakes are higher everything's more serious and it's it's something that you see a lot of times in television where uh, and and you see it in, in comic books and, and in films that are franchises. Uh, not so much in single-story ones, because it doesn't really necessarily matter if you kill someone off. But you see, if you're going to have those high forms of stakes, you know, if you're going to kill off a character, you're going to do it in one of two, uh, a regular part of your cast, you're going to do it in one of two ways. One that really sells the threat of the villain Leading into the leading, you know, in the build-up, a I know we always reference their show, but a Jenny Calendar moment from from Buffy, or a when it when it's done poorly, we call it fridging. Or in order to make that big final fight seem as epic as it needs to be, and not seem like okay, well, yeah, they made it made it look challenging, but everybody made it through it just fine. You kill someone off in the final battle, and that's what happens here the character's going the character will you know for next week come back sorry but they actually lose their first character on stream here and it's it's a moment that really sells the significance of the fight because they've had characters go down but they haven't had characters get to this point and i know i don't know about you guys when the first time you watch it this was easily one of the most intense fights 
I think yeah. this was the first one that really had me like on like say on my bed watching like on the edge literally on the edge of this seat where when it finally was over I was like jump up hands up in the air and if you don't have those kind of serious you know serious moments or or characters you know at least near death you're not going to get that level of impact that I think is important in scenes in, in in moments like this. What do you guys think? Uh, it's definitely important. Character like character threat is an important part of storytelling. It has to like especially in D anD D, there has to be the threat of failure for it to be important enough to succeed. That, that's that's one that's one of my major irritations with new GMs. Um, is I is <laughs> Either a lack of threat or nothing but threat. (laughs) (laughs) Never anything in the middle. Yeah. And and to be fair, my personal gaming style, I lean a little bit more to the right side of that scale than to the left. But I don't think it's unfair of me to say that every time I present a threat to my players, there is a way out. It's not Mm -hmm. an expectation of you're going to die. It's... This is going to be tough, but you can do it. Yeah. Um, and, and there has to for it to for anything you do to be meaningful, it has to have some form of you might not come back from this. You can't have the safety net. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because if you know if 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 and and even if there 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 are ways to implement a safety net without it seeming like a safety net, as 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 um. As Jeremy found out from uh, our our campaign, I'm not going to spoil it for the audience that might not be up to that point yet. Darlorati is an interesting place. That's it all is. We'll say. It is. Um, <laughs> like sometimes, sometimes a safety net isn't all that much of a safety net. <laughs> Whatever. She regrets nothing. <laughs> she regrets a lot. And you know there's it. a lot of no. regrets there. <laughs> um, Not a lot. Anyways, uh, but but yeah, uh, even with those, even with those, you know, systems in place, there's still a, there's still something to lose. It might not be your character. It might be something else. But the, there has to be the threat of loss for the impact to be there for us, the audience, and for you, the players, and for everybody in between to be invested. Yeah. And and, and like I said, uh, new GMs often will try to go a little too easy and not and they're like, I don't. They'll, they'll say the phrase, "I don't want to kill you guys." Yeah. Um, which is fine. Don't say it. Right. You're right. Because it like, once it, you it, it, once you say it, all the drama is gone yes like for me i know that when i'm trying to when i'm dm i'm looking at it as you know what if characters die characters die you know i'm not going to pull their asses out of the fire in the middle of a fight right but i i don't fudge dice rolls right exactly but i'm not necessarily going to like i'm going i i always prefer to try and ramp up my, my 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 threats to quote unquote the seasonal climax, I think of my I think of my DMing a lot like like sort of episodic storytelling, seasonal mm-hmm. storytelling kinds of things. Yeah. So you know the first fights you're going to face, 
you really got to kind of try to kill your to get killed. But it can certainly happen if, say, you try to jump onto a ledge in the middle of rain and had a certain roll knock on the way that it had gone. Uh, so you mean so you mean if the character isn't a badass is what you're saying? Is that what? <laughs> Is that the implication here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if you're not a badass, then yes, I can see how you could die. Um, yes, you rolled that die very badassly. I did, um, I did. But... <laughs> no, it's a great moment. Again, but... if, you, if you want to succeed, just be a badass. Come on, it's the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but, and yeah, that's like a lot of times... I don't know. You can you can kind of sense it when when yeah. certain people or certain certain DMs, and it's fine, especially if you're new. I would rather somebody go err on this if they are new. I would rather they err on the side of safety than the side of TPK because it's a lot easier to end a game that uh, on the other side. But you kind of have to learn to strike that balance. Yep. Yeah. Jack, what about you? I, don't, I was like, I'm trying to say anything. I spoke. Jeremy spoke. Jack, your turn. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just sitting over here cultivating my my concepts and and also thinking about Buffy since we referenced her so much. I mean, but, yeah, you're no, also running a vampire game, so you should. You're you're also yeah. running a vampire you game. Should and be it's thinking the 20th about Buffy. anniversary month of Buffy. Right. We're running a 20th uh, anniversary vampire game. <laughs> this is also true. Yeah, that's not a coincidence at all. Um, <laughs> but no, as far as as far as establishing risk, it's different in in terms of what sort of game that you're running. And I'm going to go a little more on the mechanic side, but it's it's narrative as well. When when you're you know, because D and D is fairly combat heavy. The mm-hmm. the there's there's a there's a setting assumption of we're going to be going out and stepping on goblin necks more or less which means face to face confrontational combat and there that is an inherently risky activity otherwise you might as well just be sitting in your kitchen with a fly swatter well i mean for some and, goblins you may as well be sitting in the kitchen with a fly right, swatter you know and well and and that's why you know the the game itself is designed to have things that are more threatening than goblins eventually and if there isn't a risk associated, then then there's there's far less meaning and investment on the audience. Because if you're if you're stepping into a situation knowing that you'll succeed, you barely need to roll the dice or tell the story. You know, you might as well just flash to and they're walking out of the door, wiping the blood off their swords, you know, that sort of thing, which which can be effective especially in sort of like a comedic action kind of kind of sense you know it's 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 indiana jones shooting the guy with the sword you know it's it's a it can be it can be funny but there's not a level of of concern or or risk that's portrayed on on the aspect on the on the side of the audience there after the initial after the initial gunshot whereas something like our vampire game it's a much less confrontational it's more of a a mystery investigation centered story where the the risk is more implicit than explicit the idea that it's not at least at this stage the player characters the protagonists who are risking something but there is a threat out there and most of the risk that i've been trying to communicate to to my players in that game has been less overtly stated you know because because when because when 
a horde of goblins comes boiling out of a cave, you know, howling and snapping and and waving jagged rusty blades in your face, you know what the threat is. Pointy metal bits getting stuck into my body. When when there is a unknown killer at at large in the city and the victims are starting to pile up and you don't have a clear picture of why these victims or what the purpose if there is a purpose behind these crimes then the the risk and the investment on on the part of the audience is is partially that of the unknown what if this is not solved what is the ultimate end game what what consequences could arise as a result of this we don't know and that can be threatening in its own way given that the the risk is unstated and Honestly, determining what the risk is might be a key element in eventually solving this this problem. So it can go either way, and there are there are varying breeds of risk depending on what type of story you're telling. But if there is no fundamental risk, then you're eliminating a key element of narrative conflict. All this to That's say, Grog. Thought. All this to say, Grog had to die. Um, all this to say, Grog had to die. Yeah, and he did. But they brought him back. They did bring him back. Um, but that, but that moment, those moments of tension in between the third failed death save and the the res, the revivification, that revivification. There we go. You know, those are key story beats in defining what sort of narrative is being told. Yep. There's a reason why in hospital dramas they linger on the uh, heart stop sound before going back to the heart. Yeah. All right. Well, that has been episode 11, The Temple Showdown of Critical Thinking, and we have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out at our website at financialfilms.com. You can check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms. If you want to support us financially, you can do so at either of those locations. Uh, we thank all of our supporters, especially our $20 supporters on, on Patreon, Chris Comfort and Nancy Tonic, or $25 tier, I should say. And uh, if you'd like what you're listening to and you'd like to help uh, support us, go through, a book, go through a couple books our way that, uh, over there. Especially because uh, uh, our next tier on the Patreon is uh, basically going to be paying uh, Jack here, who does our audio, ed- who does some of our audio editing. So, uh, if you'd like to help pay Jack, go uh, go through a couple books our way on Patreon. If not, that's fine. He can starve, and so can his kids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's called. That's what we call emotional uh, emotional <laughs> subterfuge. Um, subterfuge. I think sorry, we're going for the right. Emotional blackmail. There's, that's the word. That's the word. That's the word. But yeah, so <laughs> feel free to go through. Well, I wasn't worried way. for Molly before, but now I am. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you open the refrigerator. There's no food there. You went to the store last night. <laughs> Throw a couple books away that way. We appreciate that. Uh, we we also appreciate the folks over at 411mania.com. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about 411mania.com. 411mania.com. Are you interested in in movies, television, wrestling? Are you gonna be Are you gonna be paying attention this coming WrestleMania weekend? Are you Do you want to know how good uh, uh, American Gods is going to be when it airs on Stars coming next week or next yes. month? And do you want to hear? Do you want to see me do this kind of stuff in written form for each of those episodes? 
do you do you like video games? Do you like music? Do you like mixed martial arts? And if you said yes to any of those things for one of many is for you. Uh, check us out. We cover pretty much everything geeks could be interested in. I like how it sounded like you were a robot that was just temporarily malfunctioning there for a second. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You, you just went, as you were trying to find American Gods. Just the, oh, oh, just, yeah. It just sounded like somebody hit you with a wrench and you were rebooting. Yeah, you can you can or, see me or, cover all the stuff without all of the us. You know, or uh, a crowbar, as it might be. Um, <laughs> so, Yo. this has been this has been critical thinking. I've been John. That's been Jack. The other one's been Jeremy. Find us on Twitter. Follow us. Rate us on iTunes. Do whatever. Uh, I've lost the end of this. <laughs> do whatever. Do whatever you want to do, man. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> goodbye.